Well, thank you for having me. Um, You can open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. And as you're opening there, you know, I was thinking about the nature of preaching. It's it's such a strange thing, right, for y'all to sit here and I just talk at you. And this isn't school and it's not university, it's not college. Um, This is kind of a strange thing. I was talking to a a pastor uh, from California many years ago who did his PhD on preaching and was saying, sociologically, this is the worst way to transfer information to somebody. Just having them sit down and be quiet for 40 minutes is the absolute worst way to get you to learn something. And, you know, praise God, preaching is not information transfer. When we open up the Word of God together in the presence of God, what we are doing is something bigger than that. The Word of God is not a textbook that we just kind of download into our brains. So my prayer for you guys this week has been that together the Lord will be pleased in this moment, this morning, to help us rediscover the Word of God with Christ at the center in a fresh way and and discover that the Word of God isn't Um, it's not static. The Word of God does something in the people of God. You know, Eugene Peterson talks about, um, when he preaches, talked about, he passed away some years ago, but he, he said, I like to think that when I'm preaching, Jesus is walking up and down the aisles healing people. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And I think he's right. I also think that he's, he's like a surgeon who wounds and heals with a stroke. And that's what the Word of God does. And so we're going to look at at this memoir of Nehemiah today and think about what the Word of God does in the people of God. So uh, these these are the memoirs of Nehemiah, right? This is him reflecting back on this remarkable season of life. And in the eighth chapter that we're studying today, there are a number of characters, because it is a narrative, it's a story. There's the Levites, right, who are explaining the law of God to the people of God. There's Ezra, the scribe, who reads the law clearly to the people. There's Nehemiah himself, who's the spiritual leader of this community. And and there's the people of Israel. So there's a lot of different characters at work. But I would argue, I would suggest to you today that the main character in this narrative is the Word of God. The Word of God does more action in the plot so to speak, than anyone else does. Um, so we're going to read Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 through 18, slowly. And let's think about, as we read through, what is the Word of God doing in the people of God? And as a side note, um, he says, the, the phrase here is law of God. The word is Torah. It's the teaching. It's the, it's the way of referencing all of the Bible that they had up to that point. So when we read and you see the law of God, He's not just talking about individual commandments, but the whole breadth of the Bible's teaching that they had in Nehemiah's day. So let's go to the word now and read, starting in verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, he being Nehemiah, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
Though the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths or tents during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I noticed four things, at least, that I want to talk about from this text that the Word of God does in in the people of God. So this will be a four-point sermon, but I promise it won't be extra long for having an extra point or two. So number one, let's just dive right in. Number one, the Word of God grieves the people of God. Did you catch that? The Word of God grieves the people of God. Look again at verse 9. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Why? For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. They were grieved. Now, my kids, uh, we've got three kids that are off, you know, uh, terrorizing your kids' workers (laughs) in another room. They watched, it's not fair, they're not terrorizing, they're good kids. They watched a show called Bluey. Uh, have you guys heard of Bluey? Anybody? Yeah, I see some nods. Bluey's phenomenal. It's a cartoon from Australia uh, about a couple of kids and their parents. And these parents, the mom and dad, will go to absolutely any lengths to play and have fun with their kids, to enjoy their kids. Now, I have a love-hate relationship with Bluey. Now, I, I love the show because it's genuinely hilarious. It makes me want to watch it when they're not even around. But I hate it because when I compare myself to the dad in that show, I feel like a pretty poor father, to be honest. I don't, I'm not as playful, I'm not as willing to go to the lengths that this dad is willing to go. Contrast, like that, me compared to him, contrast has a way of making us grieve. I once saw a Phil Kage in concert and I didn't pick up my guitar again for a year because he's so good. And I'm like, well, compared to him, why bother? Like, I'll never get that good. That contrast has a way of making us grieve for what we lack. And when the people of God read the word of God, they encountered a holy God, a pure God, a righteous God. The overwhelming holiness of God, by contrast, caused them to grieve. 
That's the first thing the Word of God does in the people of God, is through God's Word, we encounter His holiness, we encounter His purity in such a way that deep in our hearts, we begin to know how, how far short we fall. Encountering God's holiness always does this. Think about Mount Sinai in the Exodus, right? God descends on the mountain with thunder and lightning and trumpets and earthquake and in, in, in all of his holiness. And he says, don't even let the people touch the mountain lest they be consumed. The contrast was so great and the people were terrified. They said, don't let that voice speak to us again. You speak to him, Moses, but we can't handle it. Because encountering God's holiness always shows by contrast our lack of holiness, right? Or in Isaiah chapter 6, you know, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple with his glory. And the angels are crying, holy, holy, holy. And when Isaiah sees God in all of his holiness, what does he say? Woe to me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He confesses his sin. That's what encountering the holiness of God does, is it actually grieves us. Even when the beloved disciple encounters the risen Christ in the book of Revelation, his best friend. You know, this is the disciple who laid his head on Jesus' chest, eating the Lord's Supper. And when he sees the risen Jesus, he falls on his face as though dead. That's what encountering the holiness of God does in the people of God is it grieves us for our sins. It grieves us for our sinfulness. And if, if you haven't, if we haven't encountered that sensation before, if we don't know what it is like to be in the presence of a holy God, to see in the pages of Scripture, to encounter the holiness of God and feel the depth of our sin, then I don't know that we've really encountered God. Maybe we're not reading carefully. Or maybe we're just not believing what we're reading. So that's the first thing. The word of God grieves the people of God. Thank goodness it does not stop there. Point number two, the word of God strengthens the people of God. Look with me at verses 10 and 12. Then he, Nehemiah, said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord, and do not be grieved, for joy of the Lord is your strength. Verse 12, And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and make great rejoicing. Why? Because they had understood the words that were declared to them that. They did make great rejoicing, right? Nehemiah says, go rejoice. And they say, okay, let's rejoice. But what was the cause of their rejoicing? They understood their Bible. So reading the Bible makes us grieve for our sins. And rightly understanding the Bible makes us rejoice. How can that be so? Nehemiah explains at the end of verse 10, he says, don't be grieved for the joy of the Lord. That's your strength. Let's think about that phrase for a moment. It sounds great. What does it mean? Now, there's a, there's a word for strength, you know, like arm strength in Hebrew, and that is not this word. This is a different word in Hebrew, 
That's the word for mountain stronghold. Okay, so you could say, and some translations say, the joy of the Lord is your refuge. The joy of the Lord is your stronghold. It's a mountain fortress. Now think about that. What happened in the book of Nehemiah? Like, what did we talk about last week, the week before, that Dustin led you through? They finished a building project, didn't they? They built a wall to fortify their mountain stronghold. And Nehemiah is now saying to the people, nothing can keep you safe and secure and strong like the gladness of God. You think this wall and this city is your, is your refuge? It's not. The joy of the Lord is your strength. He doesn't say the joy from the Lord. He doesn't say your joy that comes from knowing God, right? He says the joy of the Lord. What's going on there? What is the joy of the Lord? What is the gladness of God? The joy of the Lord is this. Sinners forgiven, purified in the blood of Christ. Hebrews 12.1 says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross and despised the shame. It's the gladness of God that saves you. It's for joy that Jesus bore your sins on that cross. Joy in having you forgiven and reconciled to himself forever. I wonder if you really believe that. I struggle to. No wall of self-protection No structures of moralism, no amount of doing the right thing can bring you the eternal safety and security that comes through the very gladness of God. What does the Word of God do in you? It's going to do something. Does it grieve you? Or do you keep going? If it grieves you, Take that grief to the cross. Follow that sins to the place where they're nailed to the tree and paid for. And you're going to find the joy of the Lord is your strength. Only reading the Bible through the lens of Jesus, as he taught us to do in Luke chapter 24, will, only by doing that are you going to rightly understand the Bible and get to, like they did, to great rejoicing because they had understood the word that was proclaimed to them. So the word of God grieves the people of God. The word of God strengthens the people of God. Now, point number three, the word of God uncovers the sins of the people of God. So this is in the second chunk of what we read, verses 13 through 18. Um, you'll notice they're talking about booths. What's going on there? Well, centuries ago, when God came down on Mount Sinai and delivered the, the laws, the commands to Moses, he gave them a calendar of festivals to keep, right? These festivals and feasts that point to Jesus. And, and one of them was called the Feast of Booths. Um, it's also a harvest festival. Incidentally, it would normally be happening right about now. Um, so in the Feast of Booths, they're making tents and they're living them in them for a week to remember their wilderness wanderings when they were freed from Egypt and wandered the desert for 40 years, being provided for by God. So that's one thing that the Feast of Booths does, that you remember your wilderness wanderings. The second thing is, it is you enact God's faithfulness in providing for himself a harvest of, of all peoples. So they're reading about this Feast of Booths, and it, the Word of God uncovers this sin, this, this area where obedience was lacking. 
and they hadn't obeyed it since the time of Joshua. It was like, what, 500 years ago? Something like that, before Nehemiah? So centuries of disobedience. But that's what the Word of God does. When you read your Bible, the Spirit of God will stir in your heart and convict you of sins, sins of commission and sins of omission, right? So it's, it, the Spirit shows us not just the sins that you do, but the righteousnesses that you don't do. <laughs> Does that make sense? Uh, in verse 15, they read this in the law of God. It says, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. Um, this is really interesting. They didn't just have their lack of obedience exposed. They were actually given a blueprint for new obedience. God didn't just say, you've messed up. He gave them a way out. He gave them something to do, didn't he? And the word of God not only you know, exposed this sinful uh, lack of obedience, but compelled them into beautiful, specific obedience. When, the, when we come to the Bible, we can expect something actually quite practical. Not an obvious, here's 12 steps to a better life or a financial plan or a budget or you know, how to deal with a difficult boss or whatever. But we are taught clearly in the Bible how to turn to Jesus and get forgiveness for our sins. So revealing uh, areas of new obedience, uncovering the sins of the people of God. Now that might not sound like joyful news to you. But remember where we've just come from. They were making great rejoicing. The joy of the Lord is their strength. Now, what happens when you come to love something? You begin to orient your life around that thing, right? So you love baseball. You're going to change your schedules to make sure you can watch the important games, right? You love Lord of the Rings. You might take up pipe smoking. If you love the Lord your God... If you have found that the joy of the Lord is your strength, what wouldn't you do for him? What wouldn't you want to do for him? If the gladness of God has saved you from your sins, that same gladness, that's what compels us into this new obedience with joy. Not dragging our feet like, oh, do I have to? But like, oh, I'm so glad I have this opportunity now to, to please God who's already so glad in me. If we're going to follow the, the, this Lord we love who gives us his joy, we need him through his word to uncover sins that we did not know were there. That's actually the grace of God for us. Lastly, number four, the word of God gives the people of God great joy. There's been a theme to this text, to the sermon, it's got to be joy. It's, it's all over this particular passage. Word of God is our pathway into joy. Not just um, mediocre gladness, but like surging, rich, deep joy. A friend of mine, a pastor friend, was telling me about when he first learned to read the Bible. He was told as a kid, read the Bible. So he did. And he came to the conclusion, this is not written for me. I don't get this. This feels foreign. It doesn't do anything in me. I don't understand what's going on. I'm good. He didn't read it for years, right? 
um, someone came along when he was in college and said, hey, someone showed me how to do Bible study. Can I show you what they just said to me? And he's like, oh, here we go, more methods for reading this archaic thing. And this friend of his, God bless them, sat down, and they just read it real slow, looked at words and go, huh, I wonder what that means. Looked them up. <laughs> Did, there was no technique. There was no, you know, seminary degree required to get the word of God. And when he realized that all you have to do is really read it slowly and thoughtfully and think about it, chew on it, meditate on it, like Psalm 1 says, he said, this is the greatest power on earth. I can go home with this in my hand and know God. Whoa, <laughs> that's insane. That's joy. That's on offer for us. Friends, we've all got one of these. You've got the greatest power on earth in your hands. Just letting it do its thing in you by God's grace. That's how revival starts. In our hearts, in our churches, in our communities, in our nation. Revival is just the, the overflow of joy from our forgiven hearts into others' hearts and into a community and then off into eternity. That's what's happening in Nehemiah 8. The rediscovery, the recovery of the word of God has often been the first stones of the avalanche of revival. Josiah, good king, one of the few good kings. In 2 Kings, Josiah, they rediscover the long-lost book of the law. It's been gone for generations. They find it in the treasury. They read it, and he's like, whoa! Look what we've not done for God. Look what new obedience we could walk into. And whoom, revival takes over the people of Judah. Ezra and Nehemiah, the, the books we're studying now, a recovery of God's law, remarkable revival. Next week, if you go into chapter 9, you'll see a beautiful prayer of revival. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel's sitting in exile just before this book was written, just before Nehemiah. Daniel's, Daniel's sitting in exile. They've been there 70 years, and he opens the word of God with fresh eyes and says, oh, we've sinned, and God says it's those sins that put us here. And he prays the prayer that God has been waiting for to rescue his people, to answer that prayer and pull his people out of slavery in Persia and Babylon. Acts chapter 2. Peter, now understanding his Bible with Jesus, the, risen, the crucified risen Savior at the center of it, Peter preaches a sermon to the Jews and puts Christ in the middle of the word of God and they are cut to the heart. They say, whoa, what do we have to do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. It's putting Jesus at the center of the Bible. That's the rediscovery of the word of God I've been praying into for us. Let's recover the word of God like that. Let's let the Lord do his work in our hearts. Let's let, just allow, receive the word of God to do this in you, the people of God. Let me pray. Lord, would you grieve us by our sins? Be pleased to strengthen us with your joy. Uncover areas of new obedience, Lord, so that we can follow you and feel your smile that we already have in Christ. Help us to obey from freedom, 
not for freedom. And Lord, walk us into revival for your glory and our joy. Amen.